You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years a row. This is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Pupko. I'm Avram Kibalevich. Rabbi Pupko, thank you for being with us here today. And we're starting something new. <laughs> and uh, despite the serious tone that I tried to uh, invoke, <clears throat> you are someone that uh, is uniquely able to speak about what it means to be a rabbi. <clears throat> because you've been a rov, not only for the 40 years, as I said, but you've been in one position for close to 35 years. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily one of the positions where you just clock in and go to sleep. You are a, an active, important rabbi in Montreal, Canada. And um, specifically, I want to ask you about one of the positions that you hold, of the many, that you are the co-chair of the Canadian Rabbinic Caucus. A little search online uh, allowed me to understand that the Canadian Rabbinic Caucus is an umbrella organization that includes rabbis from the complete spectrum of Canada. And you work together with those groups in order to promote uh, Jewish interests, the interests of your synagogues and your community. Now, I want to start with something which, when we were growing up, and we're old friends, and we talked about this on one of our previous podcasts, uh, one of the issues that was very hot in the 50s, 60s, and even early 70s was working together with other stripes of Orthodox working together with conservative and reform, reconstructionist. Um, there was a, 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 as we know, uh, Rabbi Salvechik was uh, attacked by many uh, in the late 50s for his association with the New York Board of Rabbis, which was an umbrella organization. And there was Psokim from Rav Moshe and others, whether it was these type of things were halakhically allowed. Should we, what should be the amount of interconnectivity rabbis should have, considering the very stark difference in worldview and hashkafa, and even the, the idea of what Judaism is. And when we work together with these groups, are we granting them legitimacy that they do deserve, and are they going to drag us down? Before I let you start, and I'm not going to interrupt you, because our audience who heard the podcast that we did together and on principle loved hearing you, and I, and I want this to be your platform. But I just want to give you a little bit of a bone to chew on. Uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Meltzen, the student of the Vilna Gon, I know you're thinking about the dog that I have here, the bone to chew on. But Rabbi Yitzhak Meltzen, who, who was the student of the Vilna Gon, says when we pray every morning that that an Odomra is someone who's clearly a bad dude. That's somebody you want to stay away from. Someone with midos rows that could hurt you. A chavero is someone who's actually a great guy. In fact, someone who's, who's a very excellent person in terms of midos and derech eretz, but his hashkafas and his ideas, that's what you have to be worried about. He's very easy to connect to, but as the Vilna Gon writes in his parish on Mishle, those are the ones you have to worry about even more because they seem to be so pleasant and wonderful and yet they can pollute your mind and, and, and get you off the derech. That, that's a standard mahalach about why to stay away and we should work in our own little aguda umbrella system. 
And you have not done that. So why don't you talk about that? And I'm going to listen and maybe interrupt you a little bit. Go ahead. You know, um, these debates are very old debates. Um, they go back to uh, the strife that occurred in Eastern Europe uh, and in Western Europe uh, and how the Orthodox community reacted uh, to uh, uh, the advent of the reform movement in particular in, in Hungary and Germany and in other places. You know, um, listen, there were always different approaches. But I, I believe the world has changed, or our world has changed so dramatically that some of the arguments, both for and against, are no longer relevant. The world has changed so dramatically. Let me explain what I mean. My father, who, uh, uh, bless the memory, who became a rabbi in Pittsburgh uh, in the early 40s, uh, entered a rabbinical world and the Jewish world, which is so different than where we're now living. In that world, who were the conservative rabbis? Who were they? These were young men who had been raised Orthodox, who had gone to Yeshiva University or Chaim Berlin and gone off. When I say gone off, I don't necessarily mean personally. I think some of them remained, you know, certainly religious in their own personal life, but certainly the way any of us would think of it, they went off. They took conservative or, or, uh, 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 positions. And it was, and that was a, a, a terrible thing that had happened. In other words, people who knew better or should have known better uh, broke with, uh, uh, with orthodoxy. And therefore, the conservative rabbi that my father confronted uh, was the conservative rabbi who went to yeshiva and then went off. Uh, and, and therefore, they were looked at in a very uh, critical manner, and deservedly so. Uh, you know, there was lack of uh, positions in the, in the Orthodox world. They, they took uh, compromised uh, synagogues. And, 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 and therefore, uh, they were treated uh, with, with uh, the way they were for very good reason. Also, let's think of something. There's nothing else that changed dramatically. In the 1950s and 1960s, you know, uh, when an Orthodox, there were, there were many Orthodox Jews who, would give up orthodoxy, certainly in the, in the decades prior to that, but would give up orthodoxy, and they would go to the conservative temple. I've been a rabbi for 40 years. And in all that time, I don't know anybody who's left my shoulder to join a conservative shoulder. When people leave orthodoxy today, they don't leave it to join a conservative synagogue or reform temple. They leave it to go to Las Vegas. Okay, the, the, the idea that conservative reform movement is a threat to traditional Judaism is beyond anachronistic. It's not true. It's not true. The threat to orthodoxy does not come from a reform rabbi or a conservative rabbi. The risk to orthodoxy, the kids who go off the derech, aren't tempted by mixed seating. They aren't tempted by a microphone or a parking lot. They're not tempted by that. It's not the issue for people going off the derech today. So the people who were going off the derrick in the 40s, the 50s, and 60s would leave the Orthodox synagogue and join the conservatives. Right? They want to be more American or whatever it was. They, wanted, they didn't want the uh, restrictions of Orthodoxy. They didn't want the discipline of Orthodoxy. They didn't want the social circle of an Orthodox community. They wanted the social circle of what they thought was a more enlightened community. Right? That's not the case today. People don't leave Orthodox souls to join conservative souls. People who give up being Sharma Shabbos, don't go to a conservative synagogue the next week 
They don't go to any synagogue the next week. So the framework which brought <laughs> these uh, condemnations uh, to the forefront of condemning those who engage with the conservative reform movement, were dealing in a very different religious and sociological environment. They were dealing in an environment and were children of an environment where conservative reform movement presented a threat to Orthodox. That's, that isn't the case today. It hasn't been for a very long time. Also, the other issue I mentioned, the conservative reform rabbis we meet today are not the children of orthodoxy. These are not the children, these are not people who were orthodox. These are the good kids from the conservative movement who wanted to be more committed, who grew up with the USY and Camp Mossad and became very excited about, about this and wanted to be, serve the Jewish people and become rabbis. These are very sincere individuals, as misguided as we may believe they are and as they are. The point is, they are not people who broke with orthodoxy. These are people who broke with assimilation to become rabbis in their, in the, in their understanding of what a rabbi is. So we're dealing in a very different sociological terrain, and we're dealing with very different individuals. So the idea that you don't cooperate with conservative reform rabbis on community matters or sit with them on an, in an organization, uh, on, on a Canadian rabbinic caucus, which is not a religious organization. It's a political organization to represent the Jewish people politically in the religious arena of Canada, you know, on, on matters, and to, and to have a, a voice from rabbis on political matters. But to, to sit on that and to think you're granting them legitimacy, what does that even mean? Without you being there, they're illegitimate. Somebody thinks, oh, is there anyone in the world today who thinks that Orthodox rabbis embrace or legitimize conservative reform movement? No. Nobody thinks that today. And the idea that some people in the creative community says, well, you have to make a statement. It has to be a machad. It has to, you know, you, ha you have to make it clear. You have to, you know, you can't. That's not how the world works anymore. That's not how the world works. Everyone knows who, where we stand. No one, is, no one has any trouble, right, understanding that orthodoxy is what it is and that it does not grant legitimacy to non-orthodox movements. That statement has been said. It's been screamed from every orthodox balcony. Everybody knows that. And the conservatives have their constituency, although it's an aging and, and in many ways, a, a troubled movement now. Because the reform movement has its constituency. And... We all know that the position of orthodoxy in North America is much stronger than anybody had the right to imagine 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, there's a degree of autonomy and, 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 and self-sufficiency that the orthodox community has, has achieved and a vibrancy and it allowed the orthodox community to flourish. Is the orthodox community perfect? Of course not. But again, um, the idea that uh, orthodoxy is at risk of... of, of uh, uh, of defections to other movements is bizarre. Okay, so let me push back just let me push back just a little bit. And you've given uh, me and anyone listening here uh, a great background. But first of all, let me just push back a little. As I said, you might remember Ismer Sorish. You might know who I'm talking about. He uh, it wasn't that long ago that he made an appeal to modern orthodoxy, if you might remember, to say, join us, join us, the, the, uh, the last vestiges of, conservative, of the conservative movement, and we, can, we have much more in common than you do with the Haredi world. 
whether it has to do with allowing women to be rabbis, whether it whether it's being more inclusive, who comes into the synagogue in terms of uh, recognizing the validity of same-sex unions and other things. I'm not sure if he mentioned that specifically, but there has been an, uh, an attempt. I remember Soros was very impassioned, and he said, look, you are more like us than you are like your right-wing uh, people who you sometimes align with. So there was... That that and we all know we talked about modern orthodoxy last on one of our on our episode that we we did on on principle, which is available on our podcast site, and and, and I think there is some stark lines of difference. Uh, I, let let me give you an, an example. Um, uh, there, let's say when uh, the Supreme Court uh, uh, decided that here in the United States, that homosexual marriage was a proper marriage and it should be legal in all states and, and you can't ban it. I remember there were services that was held. It was on a Friday afternoon that the Supreme Court came down with that ruling and that they were, however paltry uh, the, uh, peop- the amount of people who came to those synagogues were, they made a big, a big deal of out of the fact that we are going to celebrate this psaac. And that should be celebrated in the synagogue as well. Uh, and again, to sort of like up this one more, there were uh, across the country, there were synagogues on Rosh Hashanah that felt that we, they needed to uh, enshrine. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yes. Right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and sing the Haftorah. And <laughs> I don't know if you listen to it. They, they, instead of Sefer Shmuel, uh, and hearing. The, uh, I thought it was, when I first saw the video, I thought it was a parody. But, yeah. Uh, listen, okay. I, in no way, in no way did I mean to imply any stretch of the imagination that that we don't reject them. I just don't th- believe there's a fear of anyone thinking we don't reject them. <laughs> okay, everyone knows what an Orthodox Jew is today. Everyone knows we're the last vestige of of, of traditionalism and, and what we believe to be authentic Judaism. It is authentic Judaism. We are the guys who keep saying no. Yes, we're the guys who say no. We're the guys who say no to interfaith marriages. We're the guys who say no to uh, to gay marriage. Okay, do we? <laughs> I don't know. If we, uh, one second. I don't know if we. Uh, I don't know if we because I believe again. You know, we know the the. I don't know if it's happening in Canada. We know it's legislation is happening here in the United States and in Britain that uh, you know you can't even teach a child. Uh, that his gender identity is stable, that you, there has to be fluidity. And these are, things, these are things that rabbis and their communities are going to have to ring in on. I, I, know, I, I agree with you 100% that there is a new tension over the last decade or so, especially in the United States and, and in Britain, between what we always understood to be religious freedom and the encroachment of a liberal orthodoxy being imposed on the culture. And that has played itself out in, in, in the issues of... Uh, uh, of gay rights and gay marriage, and is now playing itself out in issues of gender identity. And, uh, and there's no question that, that that presents a challenge. But the challenge, these are new challenges, but, but in, in many ways, these are the old challenges. These are the kinds of things that have come up before in a much more radical fashion today, obviously, that we've always said no to, and we will continue to say no to. So when, when, you know, you're, and, when and your colleagues... Okay, when your colleagues on the caucus ask you to, Rabbi Pupko, you are the Orthodox member from Montreal. Right. We want your name on here too, uh, blasting 
what's happening uh, in, in, in this area. Or, or, for example, maybe you, are, you need to say that, I don't know, in Canada, the refugee issue is not what it was in the United States. Right. But, but we know a couple of years ago, there was a, there was a huge, uh, I would say in the Hebrew, the word is a kitrug on the orthodoxy, that they didn't join voices strong enough condemning xenophobia and the fact right. is that we have to allow uh, immigrants from Syria and other countries and we have to give them the, the greatest amount of freedom to help them and if we don't speak out against Trump right. or others then we are complicit now that was a pressure Listen, that- the political environment in Canada is, is not nearly as divisive as it is in the states however the Canadian rabbinic caucus will speak on issues concerning religious persecution in the Middle East, you know, the persecution of Christians, the persecution of Muslims in China. We will speak to issues. Um, the one time we had trouble forming a consensus, because again, on any divisive issue, like the ones you mentioned, whether it be gay marriage or transgender issues, we won't even bring it to the table. We know what subjects can be discussed and cannot. We know it, the reform guys know it, the conservative guys know it. We deal with issues upon which there is an easy and broad consensus. The only time we had a division of opinion, which has been navigated quite deftly, was on right to die legislature, where the overwhelming majority of all of us, Orthodox, conservative, and most of the reform, were, were, took a traditional view. There were, however, significant voices within the reform movement that wanted to go along with the trend of celebrating these great heroes who uh, end their life, and therefore setting a standard that is debilitating and destructive in so many ways as it's played out in Scandinavian countries and elsewhere, where the boundaries of what is considered reasonable are, have been dramatically, dramatically expanded and, and, and in a way which has coarsened life in Canada and elsewhere, and which has devalued uh, human life, which I believe is inextricably linked to the, to the numbers of dead in nursing homes during COVID. We have trained ourselves as a culture not to care about older people's lives. And that is, a, that is an obscenity of, of, of modern culture. So the only time we had trouble forming consensus was on the right to die legislation. Everything else we talk about, nothing is brought to the table that is known or understood to be a divisive issue. Um, but on the refugee issue, but... Uh, but I, I don't remember there being an argument. The issues we discussed are the issues that we all know beforehand based on experience and intuition are consensus issues, whether it be on Israel, whether it be on, on religious freedom, whether it be on, uh, on matters uh, you know, in the international arena. We discuss matters of consensus. That's yes. all we do. Let me then... Uh, but I, I also let me, let me two questions. Of another. Okay. Sure. Just two questions, <clears throat> one follow the other. The first one is, okay, <clears throat> you talked about the vibrancy of orthodoxy and that in, in a way it's almost like the reverse of what was happening in the 40s and 50s where orthodoxy was the scrappy you know, little guy who needed to be connected in the New York Board of Rabbis and others in order for that voice to be heard, right? And that might have been Rep. Salvatric's understanding of why, especially since he was the teacher – and, ever, and nobody could match his brilliance. So it was important for him to give shiurim, et cetera, there. By the way, Rabbi David Cohen also uh, followed Rabbi Salvechik's right. uh, model and was giving shiurim to the New York Board of Rabbis for years. And he, of course, is one of the great Orthodox, uh, sits on the Moetzes. But today, 
do, do you feel it's it's that important? In other words, you talked about conservative being in, terribly in decline. In other words, are you doing them a favor, or do you think you still need to have these type of, uh, especially last week we spoke about boutique uh, synagogue life. Do you believe that this caucus and these this one voice and everybody together having those meetings, do you think it's as important as it was? Because it sounds like, in some ways, you don't even need you as an Orthodox rabbi and your synagogue specifically doesn't even need you to be doing this. That's an interesting argument. I think it's more relevant to the American situation, the Canadian. In the Canadian uh, uh, context, it's very useful for us to be able to say, rabbis from across the spectrum have said this about Israel, have said this about, you know, religious persecution. That is still useful for us because there is still uh, a kind of a simpler understanding of what the Jewish community is on the part of the, the non-Jews in Canada. And when we're able to speak with one voice, it has a certain uh, clout that none wow. of us alone would have. So, but I understand other political contexts. I mean, in New York, there is no need for the Orthodox. No one believes there's one voice in New York. No. I mean, no one believes there's one voice in Williamsburg, let alone in all of New York. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's uh, you know, so it's it's a different, completely different context. So, but, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's almost like, although you know, we, we talked about the idea of this program, and and part of it is you having that incredible experience and and knowledge and longevity as a rabbi, but you've actually been a rabbi like in a small town as big as Montreal is. The country is like a small country in a way. Right. It's it's a giant country in terms of geographical space. But basically, you've got you know you got five or six Jewish towns. You know you have Montreal, right. uh, Toronto, uh, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, Oshawa. Maybe we're going to throw Winnipeg, that in. Winnipeg, you and Winnipeg, right? <laughs> and, and and you know you have ten cities. I mean, Saskatchewan isn't really the rabbi in Saskatoon. You're not really that worried about. No, I mean, listen, I mean. Uh... Canada's entire Jewish population is, is, is not, you know, is, is certainly not all that uh, impressive. But uh, there, are two, there are two major communities. There's Toronto, Montreal, uh, in the lesser extent, Vancouver and Winnipeg and, uh, and Edmonton and Calgary, maybe a little bit. But, uh, but no, in Canada, in Canadian Jewish community is a small town. Yes, I, I don't argue with that. And therefore, our context is radically different. But I would also, you know, this is an old, old debate about engaging the non-Orthodox. The, you know, the dialogue in Hungary and the debates and stuff. And Hirsch. I mean, and- I mean, you know, can you be there? That what happened in Hungary? The even, I mean, the divisiveness. You know, but people forget what Rabbi Shaul Salanter said. Uh, Rabbi Shaul Salanter, when he was informed of what had happened in Hungary, when the reform, the dialogue movement was put in terror by the Orthodox movement. And I'm not going to tell you what you know what I think should have happened, or because again, I, it's not really relevant. But I'll tell you what Rabbi Shlomo Solanter said, and I'll paraphrase. He said, "You know, I don't know the Hungarian situation, and I don't know what I would have done in Hungary, but I do know that if it happened here, if a reformed temple or neologue, maybe you called it, opened here where I live in Russia, I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have taken a table and chairs." Sat, opened up a Gemara, sat down at the entrance to the temple, and talked to the Jews as they went in. I want to put anyone in here. And, and that's what we saw Salanter said. Not, uh, not, not Istamar Schwartz or anybody else. That's what we saw Salanter said. So all I'm saying is that there are very compelling arguments for rejection, and there are compelling arguments for a different approach. In this matter, there are two questions you have to ask yourself. 
what's the right thing to do, and also what works. And if the intent of the rejection was to shore up the legitimacy of, the, of, the, of, of orthodoxy and to announce the illegitimacy of non-orthodox movements, eh, you know, that was, didn't end up really panning out in, or necessary. So I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the arguments of the past are relevant in 2020. I mean, the, the Jewish terrain has changed. Mm-hmm. Let, let me ask you one last point on this, um, and, and maybe you've already answered it in some way, and maybe we've talked about it. Uh, the Canadian Jewish Caucus. I don't know how many Orthodox rabbis besides you are there. Um, but if you, there are many. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, but have you tried? to reach out to, and again, I hate using these terms, to some of the chevra on your right and say, hey, you know, look, this is, we can only benefit by this. Are, are, have you found that there are, and I don't know the, the shuls and I don't know the dynamic, but I know that there are chesidusha uh, manhigim. I know that there are Rosh Hashivas there. H- have you ever attempted to say, you know, it'd be great if we could get your voice here too, because people know when, when they, people yeah, know yeah. about Montreal specifically, people know there's a strong Hasidic yeah, uh, yeah. presence there. I'll tell you something funny but, uh, in a minute, but no, I've never tried because I know it won't work. Uh, I, I, don't, I try not to spend my time on futile endeavors. <laughs> no, I know, I know they won't. I know, and I respect it enormously. And I, I, I have no, I, 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 I in no way, I am in no way critical of their stance. I just know that the Jewish community needs a lot of things. And one of the things we need is the ability to speak with one voice on political matters here in Canada. And for that purpose, the Canadian Rabbinic Caucus is useful. But I also, I, I mean, I'm a child of that world. I understand the yeshiva world and the yeshiva world. I understand they can't sit with, you know, in places where, 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 where I sit. I know that. But I'll tell you something funny. During COVID, we started this thing. They actually, we uh, called the Interreligious Council. Now, I, I don't really deal in interfaith dialogue, but there's an interreligious council in Quebec to engage the government on, on issues related to COVID and houses of worship. Now, Quebec is a weird place because Quebec was very Catholic and very religious till the 1960s, and then there was something called the Quiet Revolution, and then I'm going to oversimplify, but one day all the churches were full, the next day all the churches were empty. I mean, I met the archbishop whose full-time job is selling churches. It went from the most religious place in North America to the most secular place in Canada. Let me go one step further. In the rest of North America, where you talk about separation of church and state, people imagine government taking control of religion, and therefore we have to stop that from happening. When you mention that in Quebec, separation of church and state, they imagine the church attempting to dominate the government. It's to protect the government from religion. So it's a whole different sensibility here on, on these matters. So when it related, when COVID, you know, unfolded and houses of worship, we felt weren't being respected. So I'm now part of a group. I mean, it's the most entertaining part of my week. <laughs> that includes Catholics, uh, Anglicans, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, people from the Orthodox Church, and three or four Hasidim and myself. Okay. There's no conservative, there's no reform, but there's Muslims, Buddhists, and Catholics, and Hasidim. It's, it, is, it is very entertaining. <laughs> the, the, uh, 
I'll tell you, I'll actually, I shouldn't share the story, but I'm assuming Muslims are, aren't listening. I'll, I'll tell you a very funny story. We, we were discussing with the minister at one point, the numbers of people allowed in synagogues and in, in churches and mosques, you know. So we were talking about numbers and percentages. So I was at that point, I forget exactly what month it was, but it was bad. And I, I, was, I, I thought we should ask for something small that they couldn't, that was so small they couldn't say no to just to get the doors open. You know, so I said, let's, let's, let's ask for 20%. Let's ask for 20% capacity, at least we can function, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And um, which was in sync with, uh, which was a little less than what Ontario had allowed. Anyway, I said, let's ask for, and the Muslims said, no, we have to ask for 50%. I, I said, you know, the other people on the call, the Anglican said, you know, how do you have social distancing? And I said, you know, it's 50%. It's easy for them to say no. Let's ask for 20%. Anyway, going back and forth. So he says, so I said, so somebody finally said to the Muslims, why do you want 50%? So he said, because the carpets have to touch. <laughs> I thought it had to go. I, I, you know what? I was waiting for the carpets. I, yeah, right. <laughs> so I, which I, of course, responded, get bigger carpets. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I know the Muslim guys, they were, they were laughing. It's funny. In other words, the, the prayer carpet in right, order for have, in order for the tefillah to be oila lamala, yes, yeah, so I don't know. You have to have all the. It has to. It has to become a little base on mikdash. All the carpets. The only have, thing I know about the the Muslim faith that I, I learned from Homeland. Homeland, that's right. That's he all became, I know. All but, I know is Brody. Right. I, I don't know. Right, Brody. Yeah, yeah, that's all I know. That's my, my knowledge is rather limited. I happen. I happen to have. I watched <laughs> that for the first and second season. I I, don't, I couldn't watch it past that. First of all. <laughs> First of all, I, maybe I can get your password so I can, because I don't have I don't have my own password. But uh, but I actually was moved when I would see him take out that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, no, it's very very sincere. Yeah. Anyway, so I said, get. I was about to say, after I said get bigger carpets, I was about to say I know a guy, but I thought that would you know. <laughs> that would have been the great Jewish line. Yeah, I, yeah, I, like, I could get you one for wholesale. I yeah, could get you. I know a guy. I could get you a remnant. I could get you a remnant at a good price. Right. I got a guy, you know. I got a guy. You know, but I thought that would be too much. But uh, but the Hasidim, who would never in a, in a million years sit on a rabbinical group, even with YU graduates, by the way, certainly not Kovin, who would never sit, yet have no problem sitting on this interreligious council in the time of COVID. And I'm being very, you know, very clear. I don't want to overstate or or, or, right. or, or in any way uh, distort. Uh, and I know, and, and I saw there was a press release that your name was featured prominently in about your complaint to the, right. whether it was the, the government, that they weren't allowing by Yom Kippur, it was right before Yom Kippur, they weren't allowing enough uh, 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 people to be able to attend no, the No, uh, the complaint at the time was, and, and by the way, what we did was, was, you know, the Catholics are the face of this. My name's on the, on the thing, but the Catholics were the face of this in Quebec media and Quebec life. I mean, this, you know, the, uh, well, we, we let the Catholics, you know, you know, if you're at Sadiq, Malach, the Nazis, you know, yeah. we let the Catholics <laughs> took, took, took the front row on this one. And, and they were complaining. What, 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 what aggrieved and upset the, uh, the Catholics more than anything was not so much the numbers that were or weren't allowed, was the fact that they had no access and that, and that politicians weren't talking to them. But I, I would say that, um, you know, working together, and again, just to be on this call with the Hasidim and the Muslims and the Catholics together is, is, is very interesting. But the respect that the other people on the call uh, give to the Hasidic uh, members and, and, and to the Jewish members is, is really is really heartwarming. But again, it's, it's limited to this issue of uh, navigating the COVID regulations 
and then now they're they become stricter again, and and particularly the problems that the Hasidic community has, as we all know from Israel, New York, uh, the uh, the Haredi community of COVID. We all know what the problems are, but uh, we're trying to. Do, it's interesting to work together with them. And 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 hopefully you could promote more of a kiddush Hashem there in in, in Quebec then I would say, and I'm going to be on record for it, the Chilul Hashem that really occurs. Right. Well, unfortunately, we had an incident here the other night, not in Montreal, but in Bourbon, where the Tosh Chassidim lived. There was a Simchus Torah confrontation. Uh, you know, people are simply bewildered why it is the community that has suffered so many losses continues uh, to be uh, to exhibit a lack of uh, uh, compliance. Yeah, I, 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 and, and again, I want to. I don't know if you agree with me on this. We can do this maybe on a different program because I think we're running out of time now. But I would say, it, you, it, this is not a, a area to debate the science and right. to debate the statistics. We just have to be macabre because that's what's the psak that's coming out. Uh, yeah, this I, is the, yeah. the, the logic. It's not so much you guys are are. Um, small-minded and don't accept science. That's not what it is. You just have to, we have to make a Kiddush Hashem. We have to, we have to show that we are doing what the right. government might be wrong. Who knows? Maybe the maybe Sweden and other countries are a better model. Maybe the lockdown should be this or should be that. But if the PSOC comes down, and, and we know that it doesn't come because they want to crush religion, because they want to stop in their mind the spread, and they might be right, they may not be right, we have to be macabre. We can't be out there. The Jews are very well, fragile. Of all the stupid, reckless things that have been said uh, and done in New York by, by people who aren't believers in the community, but rogue figures who put themselves forward uh, you know, on social media and other places, has been deeply troubling. And of all the things that have really... One thing that bothered me more than anything else was the invocation of the Holocaust in this conversation, where comparing... I don't know what kind of how the brain operates to come up with the idea that Gentiles who want to impose regulations to save Jewish lives are somehow comparable to people who wanted to kill us. I mean, that's a leap of insanity. That is, that is, is, is I, I, of course, look, and and, and the point is, listen, the problem is in New York, it's become a political issue with uh, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. Uh, There's whole different theories about a million different, about why, don't aren't compliant the way many of us think they should be. Uh, some, you know, maybe COVID's become normal in those communities because of how widespread it was in the spring. I don't know. Maybe it, it's just another way to demonstrate disdain for the outside world. I don't know. Uh, but uh, there's no question that it has been a uh, certainly uh, a stain on the community in New York, uh, the violence that has happened. And, and and because of the globalization of those images everywhere, even someone like yourself has to be a defender when right. you meet others. Because people say, what's with you Jews? What's going on right. with you? And, and the problem we're all put in, the dilemma we all have is that one part of our brain would never throw another Jew under the bus, would never publicly criticize an, an, another Jew. Uh, and the other part of, a, part of us just wants to scream and yell, you know, how how troubling their behavior is. So we're, we're in a, we're, it, it, puts, it puts us in a conundrum that we really can't unravel. It really does. Yep. Well, uh, you know, again, th- those are challenges that I think Kuali uh, uh, is uh, lucky to have uh, stable and Bali uh, Seichel, like my guest here, <laughs> Rabbi Ruben Pupka. So that's it, my friends, uh, for this week. We'll, and hopefully, if with your responses, 
We'll be back with Rabbi Pupko's ability to shift his time and his calendar with next week with some more of Emeritus. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 